0: Names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone
1: else's
0: copyright infringement. Hi, welcome to Escaping Society, um, where we hope to share tips on survival and all the little odds and ends that we're learning, Um, explore topics of all kinds that we think are related to Escaping Society. Um, Connect with people, so please drop us a line, provoke, offend, and question. We want to to do our part to wake people up. I think the main problem we're all facing is we're all asleep, so uh, if we get provoked or offended, I think that can be a good thing, depending on what we choose to do with that. So we are tackling a topic I'm really excited about, and I hope we can do it justice. Um, This is episode 60, Any Friend of the Devil. Uh, My name's Gumby.
1: And I'm Teresa.
0: And we are now on the Blue Ridge Parkway in the occupied lands of the Soyaha, the so. Children of the Sun. Um, we're doing this episode because we cannot simply escape society. Um, like it or not, we are society. We carry society within us wherever we go. So just as important probably more so as weaning ourselves from needing from needing from benefiting from participating in and contributing to society we need to escape our false selves and all of the entrenched beliefs blind opinions and unexamined views that compose that prison of self um, and one of the our allies in that liberation is the devil's advocate now i was curious where this term came from so i looked it up and The devil's advocate was actually a position within the Roman Catholic Church beginning in 1587. That's where the term first uh, comes from, arises. And the devil's advocate opposed God's advocate. Um, This is how they would determine, like, if they were considering making someone a saint or if there was a reported miracle, this is how they determine whether it was legitimate you know, so they they would avoid embarrassment. In other words, they'd go and check out like this miracle and uh, they didn't want to like say, okay, this is an ordained miracle. This is proof of God only to have somebody like show up a week later and like, oh, I did that. And, you know, <laughs> then the church suffers much embarrassment. So the church itself, the Roman Catholic Church came up with the position that they called the devil's advocate. And that would be, you know, one of the, what do you call somebody within the Roman Catholic Church, a father, a preacher?
1: A uh, priest.
0: A or, priest. Yeah, could say father, I guess. Or whoever plays that role. Obviously, I'm not Roman Catholic. You're a Catholic. I'm surprised you don't know that. No, yeah, I don't go to church. Um, so, I found that really interesting that the church themselves, you know, in this time, the 1500s, you know, we think about the church as being such a uh, authoritarian, you know, like, very narrow-minded institution, and I still believe it is, but... They were in witches, you know? This was around the time of the Spanish Inquisition and things like that. And yet, they chose to have a position called the devil's advocate to oppose God's advocate. Why? In case God's advocate was wrong. I found that really interesting. And God's advocate would be the one to show up, you know, with this uh, reported miracle and to give all the reasons why this was a miracle. You know, this was God's advocate. This is a miracle because blah, 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 they'd make their case. The devil's advocate was the critic, and the church saw the need for this person. This was a very valuable person. The devil's advocate would show up and say, well, if this is indeed a miracle, then what about this? Couldn't this cause that? Why don't I see this? You know, that would be the, the critical screening to make sure they actually had something. It would make the argument strong, and that was the devil's advocate's job.
1: It's like the devil's in the details.
0: Yeah. Make sure you speak up. Remember, we're out here, so our little iPad microphone. Um, Daniel Quinn, in the story of B, he talks about uh, the church and Antichrist, and he suggests that the church is kind of representative of our taker culture. Um, And I see why he makes that argument. You know, when you go back to the, the roots of the Abrahamic religions, man has dominion over the earth this is kind of uh, a telling of the beginning of our story that we adopted in this culture, where we are on top. We are the only rational, thinking creatures that count. Um, God is—we are made in God's image, not the dog, not the the cat, not the tree. We are made in God's image. We are exceptional. We are special. And the church had a huge role in fostering this story— the early Abrahamic religion. Now, he contrasts that, <coughs> and he represents an older, lever, animistic view opposed to the Abrahamic story of man's dominion over the world um, with the Antichrist. And he's got this great part in that book where he talks about, it's not just the Antichrist, it's the anti-Buddha, the anti-Muhammad, the anti-every religion that says we have dominion over the earth, that we are exceptional, that we are not from here, that we need to escape here. Um and this is all as the main character in the story, B, who of course many of us has re- have read the story of B by Daniel Quinn, changes. B, there was at least like I think three different people that became B in the the book, um, and it's suggested at the end that you know we take the mantle, that we become B, we spread this this message. Now I liked, I, I agreed with almost all of that. Um, I really liked this kind of different way of looking at the devil and I've, I've come across a lot of provocative ideas about you know the devil like what role he plays in this story you know um even the image of the devil with the horns and the the bottom half being a goat and everything that was actually pan or jack of the green of the wiccan religions and he was a god he was a joyous figure um, he represented the hunt and his overweight partner was the, the fertile goddess, and she was overweight and ample and huge boobs and everything because she represented the fertility of the harvest. Um, so in in a kind of way to co-opt that and take control of this rival religion, they made—the Christians made their devil look like the pagan's god. And so now they can say all of a sudden, no, oh, actually, you worship the devil. Hmm not just another god. You actually worship the worst of all things, the devil himself. You are devil worshipers. And by definition, that makes you witches. And uh, it says right here in the Bible that we shall not suffer a witch to live. So it kind of opens up a whole, it's a a brilliant piece of propaganda. Um, But anyway, going back to Daniel Quinn and the story of B. the one thing that I felt like Was left out, or another thought I had to add to it is I think of Jesus. You know, often when we think of the church now, we think of the Christian church. Christianity represents, you know, one of the huge branches of uh, this Abrahamic lineage. And I think of Jesus himself as somewhat of a devil's advocate, of a critic. He came along, and, you know, there's what, the money lenders in the temples. There's all kinds of corruption within the church, just like, you know, the story of Buddha. He was a a reaction to corruption within the existing religion. So was Jesus. He was a rebel. And uh, I was kind of wondering, like, wasn't he kind of a devil's advocate? Didn't he step up and say, well, wait a minute, you know, and start (laughs) questioning things. And I'm not sure it's right to call somebody a devil's advocate, Um Teresa, what do you think when I say devil's advocate, how would you define that? Not the origin, like what I just read, but like, what do you think a devil's advocate does?
1: Well, like you were saying, um, someone that may not even hold an opposing view, but someone who questions the logic of what you're saying and thereby, you know, either strengthens your argument directly by, you know, challenging you or maybe changes your mind in some way because maybe you can't strengthen your argument and you see that there's flaws in it.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah, I think of a devil's advocate as somebody who isn't necess- isn't just arguing with you because they hold a different point of view, but is looking for the different point of view even if it is not their own. Um so I'm not sure it's it's appropriate to call Jesus a devil's advocate. It's almost more appropriate to call him an anti-Christian because the very things he opposes are all the things that the Christian church represents now. The material wealth, the power, um, you know, his resistance, his rebellion, how he lived his life um, was hugely revolutionary, and it just got watered down almost as soon as he died. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't necessarily oppose, like, say the antichrist is the anti-Jesus, because Jesus himself was a sort of rebel, almost an anti-Christ, anti-Christian. I don't even know the word I'm looking for. Am I making any sense? Am I leaving something out you're seeing?
1: No, I was just going to say, um, uh, when you told me that about the, the term devil's advocate from the Roman Catholic Church, it just struck me as, as strange that of all the words that they could have used, they chose devil's advocate. Yeah. To describe that. Because, of course, that position was filled by someone else in society before that. It just, the term was coined or, or surfaced in 1587.
0: And how interesting that they would think the devil's advocate is the critical thinker, Mm -hmm. the one that they need. Like We need somebody to speak up for the devil. Um, We need somebody to think critically, to question. Um, At a time, I mean, keep in mind what happened to Copernicus and Galileo for questioning the Bible um, about the way the stars moved and things like that. Um, The church was not very kind to them, and yet (laughs) something within the church recognized we need a questioner So yeah, that's a really interesting part of that whole uh, where that name came from. When I think uh, of a devil's advocate, my mom has always been my devil's advocate. Um, Growing up, she would always, if I had an opinion about something, particularly if it was about a person, she would immediately take the other person's point of view and say, (laughs) you know, well, what if what, what if they were just doing that? Maybe they thought this. Maybe they didn't mean what you think they meant. And it would frustrate the hell out of me. Um, I remember so many times growing up, getting in huge blowout fights with my mom and just screaming at her, why can't you just be on my side? Um, And so I, I recognize, like, I'm seeing a lot of Facebook memes lately kind of condemning the devil's advocate. And I rarely see anything positive. I don't think I ever see anything positive about people playing the devil's advocate. You know, I see people say like, oh, the devil doesn't need any advocates. The hell he doesn't. Um... And looking back, I really appreciate that about my mom. It instilled in me, it taught me to be a devil's advocate. Um, It taught me to consider the other point of view. It taught me that when I'm in a group of people and they're all like sharing one opinion, let's challenge that opinion. Let's make sure we actually have a true opinion. Um, And I think that's really valuable. My mom, she was adopted into a family that was uh, pretty wealthy, pretty well-to-do, and She kind of had a falling out with her family Um, later in life, didn't really uh, talk to them, to her adopted family, but she would speak highly of her adopted father um, for that reason. She never used the term devil's advocate, but she would say he loved thinking and he loved debating, and she thought that was really cool. She had a lot of good memories of sitting with her father, and he would challenge her views. If she said something, he would say, well, what about this? What about that? And they would have really stimulating conversations that, to this day, she has really fond memories. And I don't hear my mom share many fond memories at all about her childhood. But this is one of those rare things that uh, she really loved about talking to her dad. Um, Now, my mom... Teresa, how would you describe my mom as far as, like, a questioner or a thinker? What's your opinion of my mom, on record?
1: Uh, Okay. Well, I mean... I've only known your mom for a few years and
0: Don't skirt the issue.
1: <laughs> she doesn't seem like she would ever be a devil's advocate. <laughs> I, in fact, I think to me it seems like she's trying to like smooth things over more so, but but I I appreciate and, you know, I'm grateful that for you, that's what she represented as far as you growing up.
0: Would you consider her argumentative?
1: Not really. I mean, Stubborn? Well, she is uh, stubborn in certain ways.
0: <laughs> You're so diplomatic. Uh,
1: no, I mean, I guess for me, she just seems to be so sweet and nice. But I could see where, you know, maybe years ago she uh, she had more spunk and she was like uh, a little bit more inclined to to debate or to kind of be the devil's advocate and argue with you.
0: Well, no, she's always, she has always been nice. And like most of us, she's uh, nicer to strangers than to her own family. We all <laughs> tend to let the manners go a little bit with the people we know the best. But uh, one thing my mom, like, she's not a genius type of person. You know, it's not like I grew up with my mother was a physicist or anything.
1: <laughs> a lawyer. Or something. Uh
0: yeah. You know, she didn't have a razor sharp mind. Um so she didn't teach me how to think well necessarily, but she taught taught me to relish thinking, to love the process. And I I believe that's more important. To love thinking, to to love considering other points of view to have an appreciation of philosophy of just considering and and turning things over in your mind no matter what the stance is find an argument for it i mean something that's out there is i don't know white supremacy for instance you know i'm thinking of something that is really hard for most of us to wrap our minds around you know like what the hell are they thinking but the challenge of answering that question what are they thinking? Mm-hmm. That's what my mom instilled in me is that that appreciation of thought. And I find that so valuable. And I don't think many people got that growing up. Um, I think now more than maybe ever, people are so opinionated. They're so closed off to any thought outside of what they have already attached to. And that's a problem.
1: Yeah. I think I think to me, her questioning like what the other person might be going through, or maybe they didn't mean that. It's, it's almost like, um, I don't want to say compassionate, but for lack of a better word, like she's trying to look at it from the other person's perspective. That's what I see in her now. I'm not saying that's what it was back then, but that's really cool that it blossomed in that way.
0: Yeah. And kind of the I don't know, I'm kind of, words are always tricky here, but maybe the dark side of being the devil's advocate is you can get really contrary. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've i heard that in like some indigenous, like Native American cultures, um, that a contrary was actually like a sacred role. Like, I think it was uh, Little Big Man, maybe, that movie with Dustin Hoffman, that they <laughs> talked about like somebody became a contrary. I might be all wrong about that. But they definitely had the word, uh, the Lakota, the... the some of the Indians out west had a role um, that I've heard the term Hayoka attached to, and I've always loved this idea of a Hayoka. And I think this is kind of their version of a devil's advocate. The Hayoka did everything contrary, opposite. You know, I don't know exactly, like, like for instance, Crazy Horse was considered a Hayoka, and I remember reading that uh, in the Lakota tribe, if you dreamed about thunder, that was one of the first signs you might be beginning the path of a Hayoka. And then they would develop that. They didn't just, like, condemn someone who questioned and didn't go along with the tribe's customs. They saw that as a sacred role, uh, a, a boat rocker, a world shaker. This is where new things come from, mm-hmm. not somebody who just goes along and does the same old shit that everybody else has done because, of course, it's going to produce the same old results if we're going to have anything new, anything to consider, anything to possibly make us stronger and adapt to this changing world, we need a Hayoka. We need somebody who does the opposite, who does the things other people aren't doing. So you've got like, you know, the the kind of comedic version of that in Little Big Man was I remember this guy would like walk backwards. He would say goodbye instead of hello. He would uh, wash in the sand, in the dirt instead of the water. Um, things like that. But I remember reading about Crazy Horse that it was customary when uh, Lakota would go on a, a a mission, you know, a war party. They'd come back and they'd brag. They would boast, just really tell huge, grandiose tales of what they did and what their, their comrades did. And this would strengthen the tribe because it would help them be proud of what they did. Like, we are Lakota. They went out there and fought for us. We are proud to be Lakota. We are strong and we are united. But Crazy Horse being a Hayoka... He was unusually quiet. It was said he would never boast about his escapades, which were phenomenal. I mean, he would lead uh, war parties and just do incredible things and then come back and not share. And this wasn't considered like good necessarily, like modest or humble. It was kind of like he wasn't doing his duty to the tribe, but it was also understood he was a Hayoka. So he wasn't condemned for that. It was like, oh, he's on his own path. He's a contrary. And I see the devil's advocate as being something similar to that. And I'm not just talking about every asshole who likes to argue and try to outsmart you and wants everybody to think they're right. To me, that's not a true devil's advocate. There's a difference between being an asshole and a devil's advocate, although there's a lot of overlap too, as I have seen all over that spectrum. I say we badly need more devil's advocates um, in this culture. I think we are starved for devil's advocates. Devil's advocates, they can broaden our perspectives because whatever your perspective is, so many of us think we have the right answer. Some of us are, you know, we're consider ourselves anarcho-primitivist. Civilization needs to fall. Foregone conclusion. We are convinced we are right. And I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm not saying I'm wrong. I'm saying when you get so convinced of that, you need to be challenged. You need to be questioned. How do you stand up to the argument? So many of us like tuck ourselves away in our incestuous little bubbles. So we're surrounded by all the people who think just like us. And one of the main places that we broadcast these opinions is social media. And what do we have there? Little unfriend buttons. Ooh, I don't like what you just said. I felt challenged. I felt threatened. That was mean. Unfriend. (laughs) Now I can just hear all the people that say, right on, I agree with you. But how do we grow? How do we get any closer to the truth if we don't have devil's advocates? I think they also strengthen our compassion. And this is the way my mom used it. You know, like, if I say somebody's an asshole, you know, that's one aspect of them. One aspect of them may indeed be an asshole. Like, I can't stand that guy. He's always like, he never shuts up. Nobody ever gets a word in. Nobody can talk around that guy. He's always talking about himself. Devil's advocate might step up and say, Yeah, but if you listen to his stories, like, man, I learned how to, like, I learned how to fix my car because of that story he talked about, like, when he's broken down on the side of the road and he, like, you know, rigged this thing up. You know, the devil's advocate can broaden our perspective and increase our compassion um, to help us see things from another person's point of view. And there is always another point of view. We never have the whole truth. And also to hone our arguments, like, I don't want to say that just the devil's advocate diffuses everything we believe. In debating, we figure out what our opposition, whatever point of view we're taking, it gives us a chance, if somebody's the devil's advocate, to debate, to to test that view, to see if, like, it just gets shot down immediately. Like, oh, that wasn't a good argument. Man, now I'm just, like, saying, you know, cussing at them and and telling them how stupid they are because I'm so insecure. I've lost the argument and I know it. Now I'm like a petulant little child, like, well, yeah, you're stupid. You probably didn't even finish high school or or some kind of crap like that. And I've seen this often. But the devil's advocate, if we allow them in, if we recognize like this is actually something that makes us stronger, they will help us hone our argument so we can still argue for all the things we believe. I used the the example of anarcho-primitivism. If you're talking to somebody who does not believe civilization needs to collapse for the world to survive, if you never argue with these people, you will never convince anyone. It's just a closed loop. You're just talking to all the people who already think like you. Nothing happens. And indeed, isn't that what we see? A bunch of people talking and nothing happening. We need those devil's advocates. And sometimes the devil's advocate is just somebody with another point of view. Yeah,
1: I'll jump in and say that um, when... Before uh, Gumby and I were hanging out and everything, I was really into recycling as well as just reducing the amount of recyclables I might have. And I was sickened by the people around me at work and in my own family that they just refused to see how, you know, recycling was helpful. And after learning, and listening because that's a big component of of learning Mm -hmm. um my views have changed quite a bit on recycling and maybe the people that weren't recycling you know maybe they didn't have they didn't even know why they weren't doing it they just like there's a garbage can I throw it out um but maybe if I would have asked them or like had some sort of dialogue instead of just being absolutely disgusted and trying to distance myself from these people, these people, (laughs) they don't even recycle. They take a plastic utensil every single time, whether they use it or not and throw it out, whether they use it or not. So I'm not saying that I was completely wrong, but I am also not saying that they are completely in the wrong. You see yeah. what
0: I mean? Yeah, I remember arguing with you like early on when you would uh, you were still working there and you would bring that up, and I would play the devil's advocate. You know, going back to my mom, a lot of people like I frustrate a lot of people because I just naturally am the devil's advocate. <laughs> um, and I would say like, well, let's say you're right. Let's say that that is good for the earth. That you know, recycling these things. I'm not making the argument that it's not. But what if these other people are doing other good things you're not doing?
1: Right, like biking to work, for example.
0: Yeah, and maybe they're looking at you like, why the, like, you're driving to work? Don't you care about the planet? And where do we get if nobody's willing to, like, stretch ourselves? If we're so convinced that we are right, we have the entire truth. um, This person is just wrong. And we see that everywhere. I was thinking about growing up being a contrary, and I've realized, like, my personality is so contrary that even my accent changes. I've seen myself go up north and get more of a southern drawl. (laughs) Instead of fitting in up north, I will, like, unconsciously start not fitting in. And if I come back down south, that southern drawl starts evaporating. Mm. People will say, like, where are you from? Are you from up north? You know, and then I go up north, and people are like, are you from down south? (laughs) I remember one time sneaking across the Canadian border when I was hitchhiking and uh, I was coming back from Canada and the border patrol caught me and they stopped and they uh, – I can't remember what they said. They just started questioning me. And like within a couple sentences of me talking to them, they're like, well, you ain't Canadian. Like, you know,
1: you're definitely from here. <laughs> they probably had to say sorry.
0: No, <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> hey, y'all. <laughs> And uh, my politics, I'll notice that that changes too. You know, if I'm around really strong leftists, um, I'll start taking the Republican point of view, the the conservative point of view. And if I'm around a lot of conservatives, you know, these good old boys that have have this Republican far right, I'll start taking more of a liberal point of view. Um, It's just something instilled in me. I'm contrary. Even my dog is contrary. I think he's picked (laughs) up some of that. Like he'll start barking and like I can't get him to shut up. And then I've started experimenting with methods to try to get him to shut up. And sometimes if he's barking, I can say, good boy. And you might think that would encourage him like, oh, I'm doing something good. But then he shuts up. (laughs) And then if that doesn't work, I'll get mad and I'll say, get, go. I'll try to send him away. And then he'll come right up to my feet and shut up and lay down. (laughs) So he comes over when I tell him to go. So yeah, I think I think Sherlock's the contrary. And you know, there's so much in our educational system that I I oppose. It's just conditioning. It's bullshit. It's just shaping us to be parts of this machine that we call our society. It's not really enabling us to survive on this planet. We don't learn primitive skills you know, in, in most schools. We don't learn
1: – We don't even learn how to cook or, or mend our clothes or anything.
0: We don't learn to – yeah, cook and mend our clothes, like just basic stuff. And uh, as, as, as other people have pointed out, we don't learn how to budget our, our income, how to balance our bills, how to even write a check. You know, these are all things that would actually help us survive in our culture, much less on the planet without our culture. You know, the bigger picture that is absent from our educational system. It is indoctrination. But one thing I do like that's in some schools is the debate team. I think that is fantastic. And I'm coming from a place of ignorance here. I I have never been on a debate team. I don't really know what goes on in those little rooms that they have the debate team. So I'm just talking about what I think a debate team is. And from what I've heard, they'll give you a point of view, or they'll ask you what your point of view is and make you take the opposite. And you have to argue for that other point of view. I think that is fantastic. If I was designing my own school, there would definitely be something similar to that within it, the debate, to consider another person's point of view. Um... And Teresa, we were talking about this earlier, and you said you weren't actually on a debate team, but you had kind of a debate assignment. Will you talk about that?
1: Yeah. So um, I was in community college, at best, and (laughs) um, there was a cultural anthropology course, and the textbook, or one of the texts, was basically a bunch of essays
0: essays
1: on different topics, and one of the assignments was just like Gumby said. You read the essays on that topic, and they were for or against. And then, I think beforehand you had to tell the teacher, you know, what is your stance on this issue, and then you had to argue the opposite. And so one of the assignments was for uh, what do they call it a clitoridectomy, like a female genital mutilation, as our society would call it um, removal of the clitoris. Ouch. And how does someone um, who happens to have a clitoris? like, how do I argue that, yes, we definitely should have that? And the essays that were presented were from anthropologists who had embedded themselves um, as best they could in cultures where this was practiced. What struck me uh, as I had to debate, you know, for the clitoridectomy is I have no idea what it's like to live in that culture. I don't know the first thing about how their marriage practices work. I don't know exactly what is going on with the women over there because it was said that, you know, if you don't have this done, you're considered dirty you're considered a woman who may be loose you know if if her husband goes away you know she might seek out sex because it's pleasurable with the clitoris so if you remove the clitoris then you don't have that problem and you're more desirable for marriage how do i know what it's like for a woman who doesn't want to get this done but then has to fend for herself in a society that's not really set up for women to just get a job you see what i'm saying I have no idea. So who am I to say? And then I think it was the same assignment um, brought into view the um, the practice of circumcision in our culture for little boys who have absolutely no say in the matter. Um, It's up to their parents, really, as to whether or not they get their foreskin removed and how that affects them in later life. Sure, the scientists say that, you know, it can help to keep the the head of the penis clean, but science also says that it deadens the feeling in the penis and therefore makes sex less pleasurable. Hmm. So, what, what do I know about that? And another assignment was I think about um, drilling in the Arctic for oil. And this has been going on for decades. This is not something new, and it's been debated probably to death. But being someone who cares for the environment, I- absolutely, I don't, I don't think at all that we should be drilling in a pristine environment. Or whether or <laughs> not it's a pristine environment, I don't think we should be drilling. However, what it does to my argument to learn about the other side what the numbers say, the statistics, what what the benefits are. Why would anybody even want to do that? So, for me to understand that better, is to look at the opposing view, and that's really all I have to say about that.
0: I really love that story because uh, it's such a marvelous lesson. And like the clitoridectomy, is that mm. how you pronounce it? I mean, that's something that anybody in our culture, myself included, kind of like, oh, of course I'm against that, but. I love the practice of having to try to argue for it. Um, For one thing, like you did, you have to acknowledge your ignorance. I don't know. I don't know what it's like to be in this culture, for this to be just widely accepted, to be a woman, to undergo this. I don't know. I love anything that makes us acknowledge our ignorance because our ignorance is profound and very few of us spend much time acknowledging it. We spend a lot of time pretending it's not there, and trying to hope nobody else sees how ignorant we are. Um, and I also love just the the implications, you know. Like like I was saying about my mom, like she taught me to relish thinking. It gets me thinking. Like you know them saying like a woman is loose like if she appreciates sex you know you were we were talking about this the other day and you were saying they might think like well you know what she's going to do when the the husband's away cuz she loves sex and we might think oh that's fucking ridiculous that is what a horrible argument but we're coming from a culture that marriages fall apart that we have infidelity all the time that we can't figure out how to get along and that we're having so much sex that it's like over exaggerated it's used to sell us everything from toothpaste to cars, sex, 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 it's overinflated. And we have this huge population that's spreading all over the planet like a plague of locusts. So maybe, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not espousing clitorectomies. I don't think that's the answer, but the argument has a point. And that's all I'm saying. And I think that is wonderful to find a point Some point, like, well, that's not complete nonsense in any stance. One of the things that strikes me about our culture, especially now, I think this is getting worse, but it's never been good as far as I can tell in my reading of history, is nobody is listening. We are profoundly deaf, and our technology enables us, empowers us to be more deaf for all those reasons I just said. These incestuous little bubbles, these uh, blogs, these... What do you call them like forums you know that you can unfriend people who disagree with you even the little things that we used to have to do to try to temper our opinionated egos for instance walk into the library who knows who you're going to run into there they may say something that offends you they may be wearing something on their t-shirt you don't like but you had to suck it up and deal with it in a little way Technology is allowing us to even erase shit like that. We can have groceries delivered to our door, never run into anybody that might offend us or look in a way we don't want them to look. We don't have to go to the library anymore. We've got the internet delivered right to us, and we don't have to look at facts that we don't like because no matter what stance that you're exploring, there is a set of facts and values by very educated sounding people to back up what you already think. You never have to grow, none of us do. It's a horrific time for this deafness, this just not being able to hear anyone. Um, You know, we've got all lives matter versus black lives matter. Both of them have a point. Neither one of them can hear a goddamn thing the other one's saying to the point where they're committing violence on each other. Democrats and Republicans, I mean, Jesus Christ, how long have they been, like, accomplishing nothing? The government, like, <laughs> the government shuts down. They're accomplishing nothing because they can't hear each other. They both have a point. And if you don't see that, you have the same sickness. Look into it. Neither stance on paper is bad. It's what the people do with this. And we're all doing things with our opinions that are either blatantly bad and destructive, or at least ineffective, because we failed to listen to the other point of view. Teresa and I are reading our way through Don Juan. We've been reading our way through uh, Carlos Castaneda, The Teachings of Don Juan, since we started these podcasts, and we're getting towards the end. We just finished, what was it? The Power of Silence. silence. One of my favorite things that Don Juan teaches Carlos Castaneda um, in this Yaqui way of knowledge is that... The biggest enemy, he says for a person to be a a sorcerer, a person of knowledge to to grow on this path, you need to find what he calls a petty tyrant. Now, this petty tyrant to me is another form of, well, no, I wouldn't call it a devil's advocate because sometimes the petty tyrant is just a bully, somebody that oppresses (laughs) you. And I don't think that's necessarily a devil's advocate, but it's that friction, that challenge. Um, And the reason why he says we need this, and this is where the devil's advocate comes in, is because it draws out our self-importance. Daniel Quinn talks about exceptionalism. Our exceptionalism, this feeling that we are so specialness, our supreme specialness has us just teetering on the brink of destruction and so utterly lonely because we are drowning in our our specialness. This self-importance gets in the way of any true knowledge, any true power, any true mystique that the human animal has more than any other thing. It is our greatest enemy. And I love that. I totally agree with that 100%. The self-importance, you see it. I mean, you just see it manifesting and blossoming and blowing up everywhere. Um, And this self-importance leads most of us to believe that what we have to say or broadcast is more important than anything we might hear or receive. And that keeps our true enemy, that that ego, that self-importance, Hidden and safe, because we're never addressing that. We're never addressing what if, what if I actually am not as important as I think I am. What, what if I don't have all the answers? We're sitting on the Blue Ridge Parkway at a uh, picnic area right now, and you can watch people having lunch. I'm talking quieter because I don't want to offend anybody. But you can watch them having lunch, and there are voices being spoken all over the place. There's winds blowing, and we do this too. I'm not separating ourselves from the herd here. There's winds blowing. There's winds changing direction, telling us subtle things about the weather. There's birds singing. And even if you know what bird song goes with what bird, they're talking about different things. There are voices being spoken all over the place. And what do we see? We see people talking, 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 and then talking, 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 (laughs) talking, 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 because what we have to say has got to be more important than anything we might hear. So few people shut the fuck up. And that's self-importance. If you don't think you're any more important than an earthworm or a blade of grass, who cares what you got to say? You're a vast ocean of ignorance. And maybe you could let some of that ignorance go. Maybe tap into something that your mind can't wrap around. Some great mystery. If you just shut up and listen. Let something else in. Grow. And we are starved for that in our culture.
1: And I just wanted to jump back in and say um, something about your mom. Oh. oh Y'all mama. mama. you mama. And... That is, it takes a certain amount of strength to to not only be a devil's advocate and, and have uh, an understanding of what other people are going through because there is so much fragility. Like, a person that is fragile, that has that self-importance, they may not be able to see very far into someone else's world. So I just wanted to give your mom... Like respect for that because, um, while you know we're, we all have our struggles and challenges in life, I feel like, um, at least what you're describing, it sounds like she really had a strength to see past herself in a number of ways.
0: Hmm. And I'm glad you brought that word fragile into it because I think sometimes what we think self importance is, is we think of We're watching our way through Seinfeld, and I think of that booming voice that Seinfeld had for his uh, girlfriend's belly button. Hello! You know, this kind of like over-the-top personality that just thinks they're so great. But actually, self-importance and ego can look exactly the opposite, too. It can be extreme insecurity. It can be the person who is just scared to death. And again, that's not a person who thinks they're no more important than a blade of grass. A blade of grass has no fear. That's the other side of the same thing, a giant ego. Um, you might think, oh my God, like I got into my, I've, I've argued with my mom, <laughs> I've argued with my mom many times about this because she has social anxiety. And, uh, you know, I, I'll often argue with her and I'll get flustered and say, well, you're, if you would swallow your pride for just a minute. She's like, I don't have pride. I am so, like, insecure and everything. And I'm like, that is the other side of pride. That is self-importance. That that feeling that everybody's looking at you, everybody's judging you, that is the same thing. So just to introduce that, you know, like, don't get this one picture of what self-importance is. We all suffer from self-importance. Um, and it doesn't always inflate. Sometimes it deflates. The lack of self-importance is equanimity. And... You know, one thing that the devil teaches me is that everyone has a point. Now, I can say that, and I can almost hear the shuffling of nodding heads, you know, for anybody hearing this. Well, yeah, everybody has a point. I like that. That's good. You know, I'd I'd get a card with that written on it. But think about what that means. Um, We don't need to fear seeing that everybody has a point. For instance, Nazis. We just condemn them roundly. They're evil. Evil as a Nazi. We use them as kind of the, uh, what would I say, like the gauge, you know, the comparison of fascism, Nazism. This is what it looks like when it reaches the extreme.
1: Absolute evil.
0: But that is a lie. That's nonsense. We all participate in varying degrees of what you might call evil. The Nazis. Have we even stopped to consider what their point was? We don't have to agree with it. It doesn't let them off the hook. It doesn't mean that we become Nazis, and it doesn't mean that we might not feel that we have to stop these people. But how the hell are we even going to oppose them if we don't know what the hell they're saying? Do we even know what we're opposing? It's, It's abysmal ignorance. Teresa, what do you think a point is that the Nazis had?
1: Oh, boy. Wow, I thought you were going to get me on uh, White Superior. Yeah, I wanted to to surprise you here. Ah. Um, All right, so this statement, (laughs) any statement that I make for this podcast where Gumby's asking me to argue about something, I just want to say it's for the sake of, like, exploring how to do this.
0: Definitely, caveat. We're going to explore some things, and these are not our views, but keep in mind what this podcast is about. Mm -hmm. We're trying to be the devil's advocate. Yeah, can you move it a little bit? Yeah. And so we're going to try to explore things that uh, <laughs> might are uh, going to be frenzy, controversial. Et
1: cetera, et cetera.
0: And if you are deeply offended by that, instead of putting that energy towards us, dig deep within yourself. What is that self-importance that you can't even stand to hear another point of view? We're not asking anybody to agree with us. Even on our regular podcast, we're not asking you to agree with us. Matter of fact, I'm really disappointed that we haven't gotten more challenges written in. <laughs> but anyway... <laughs>
1: All right. So um, Nazis led by uh, Adolf Hitler, who was able to rile up uh, a vast portion of the population with what? There was something that was bad that was making people feel like they needed to place blame on someone.
0: And right before you go on, I would invite the listeners right now before you hear what we might have to say to try to be the devil's advocate for this. Do you even know? Would you be able to make this (laughs) argument? I mean, I'm sure most of us have felt like opposed to Nazis for our whole lives, basically, and fascism. But what is the point? There's a point. There's something that is not complete nonsense. Because if it was a complete nonsense lie, It would just be swept off the table. There's something there that had at least some appearance of legitimacy. So ask yourself that. Pause this right now and see if you can answer that. But go on, Teresa. Tell us about the Nazis. Yeah,
1: no, I mean, I I am not in any way, like, I didn't even know he was going to ask me this.
0: She shaved her head a couple months ago.
1: Oh, come on. (laughs) But, I mean, this is how things happen, though, right? There are people who feel like they are being slighted, feel like there's... Maybe, uh, you know, they're victimized. There's got to be someone to blame because they are a victim of something. And if you play that up, you can pick a group of people who, for, you know, for some, their argument is strong. Their argument makes sense. And it happened that the the argument of the Nazis was uh, in part, because again, I have... I don't have a source for this but my understanding is that they blamed the Jewish people um, who happened to control a lot of things that dealt with money and finance. And so if your economy is going bad and people are out of work, people are starving, people are, you know, losing their homes or losing their jobs at the very least, who can we blame? People that are involved with money. And if a vast portion of the people that are in, you know, the banking or finance industry happen to be of a certain type of religion or skin color or this or that, then, hmm, you can start to see why a mob of people might figure out, like, hey, this is the answer to our problems.
0: I think that's a good start. Now, do you think there's any legitimacy? That's what they think. Now, do you think any of that was real?
1: Again... Um This is my ignorance on the topic. I I don't know how, if there was a majority of people in the finance and banking industries and people that had money that were Jewish, how did they get that money? I am not exactly sure. So maybe there was credence to that in the sense that, you know, did the people, um, you know, did they make money off the backs of others that, you know, were slighted? So I don't know. I don't know where this money and and because of our culture power came from.
0: Yeah. And I would imagine like we get taught a certain narrative and it's a very two-dimensional narrative, like most of the things we get taught in history. Um, but we're looking at the World War One, and Germany is like kind of crushed, demoralized. And here they have like a lot of Jewish people that are sometimes, like, not from there, moving into their towns, bringing money, bringing business, sometimes selling things that they can't afford. So, you know, imagine what that looks like to these German people. you got these this group of people that share the same religion, the same, uh, you know, ethnicity, and oftentimes they're living it up. They've got, like, more money than your family who's, like— generations been there you feel like this is your native land and keep in mind this is a uh, this is one of the lands that white people were indigenous on right um, i don't know much about the franks and the but i feel like germany was like one of those places you know that white people actually came from
1: sounds sounds plausible
0: so you know they might feel something similar of like you know like indigenous people that are not getting a fair shake. And then outside people are coming and uh, to their way of thinking, exploiting things. And then we're taught like, you know, that just the Jewish people are the good guys, period. Now, I question anybody being just the bad guys or just the good guys. And what do we see happen with a lot of these people that came out of the concentration camps? Where did they go?
1: Back into business? What?
0: No, where did they go? But what mean, did they do with all these Jewish people that got out of the concentration camps? They got a, a lot of them went somewhere after World War II. They were freed from the concentration camps. You know the answer to this. Um, what, what do they do with all these people? I don't
1: understand what you're, you're saying.
0: Never heard of Israel? Oh. Oh, yeah. And my God, is that a violent country or what? <laughs> it's not good guys or bad guys. Israel's doing, like, all kinds of shit that... I mean, if it's not, if it's not worse than the Nazis, it's at least in the same ballpark. So we're not talking about good guys and bad guys, but history doesn't teach it like that. So that would be my argument. You know, I, I look for that point, that point, because then I can understand what people are saying, even if it's just completely abhorrent to me. It does me, it does nobody any service, least of all me to not even understand what the fuck they're talking about. I think of the profilers, like the FBI profilers, you know, there's so many movies that celebrate like this guy that gets inside the mind of the serial killer. And <clears throat> to me, this is them seeing the value of that. We need to understand where this guy's coming from, what he thinks, not because we're going to justify it or let him off the hook, but because this is how we catch him. This is how we oppose him, by understanding him. Hmm. And you, again and again, you know, in talking about movies here, but we see the the sheriff's department, the cops, completely blundering it, nowhere near catching the guy. It's the profiler that was brave enough to understand the person that catches him. We even see that somewhat in the Unibomb case. Mm-hmm. You know, the profiler is the guy that eventually tracked down all the leads. And you know, if it wasn't for somebody trying to understand Ted Kaczynski to some extent, they might never have caught the guy. And as our listeners know. I'm just trying to understand the situation. I applaud Ted Kaczynski. It's not like, "Ooh, they caught the bad guy." It's how they caught him—a willingness to understand to some extent.
1: Yeah, I guess um, another example that's uh, been presented to me is Osama bin Laden, and how right when 9/11 happened, it was un— it was unquestionable how you know evil he was and everything. But as time has marched on and how, um, you know, children have grown up and now would that be, they've become adults, uh, legally anyway, they may not have had the same emotions as people who are older and and went through that. So they're looking at it like, well, so this guy was, um, trying to lead a life that he believed in, um and protect that way of life, um, sometimes violently. Who, who else does that sound like? Gosh, I feel like there's a country that goes and defends their way of living all throughout the world and often uses violence. Is it the United States?
0: That doesn't sound right.
1: No, we're the good guys. But yeah, but saying that Osama bin Laden is, you know, bad, the, the one of the worst evil masterminds of all time, do you even know, like, I don't fully understand what he stood for, but there are people in the world that don't fully understand what America is about. It just looks like a bunch of violence.
0: Yeah, if another country was inhabiting our shores um, and exploiting us and just, you know, we look around their army bases, imagine that if and I'm talking to the people in the United States but this applies to any of our listeners in a first world country imagine that one of these other countries has their army bases in our country mm-hmm. they're inhabiting us they're getting rich off of our stuff and some of us are like poor i mean we're we're herding goats and shit
1: and we were happy herding goats in our way of life until they came in and brought their ideals.
0: And they're doing it violently, you know, like most people you know have a relative that has had a bomb dropped on them, and they're either dead or horribly mangled, Um, How would you feel about that? And if one of us did exactly what Osama bin Laden did, organized a group of people and managed to fly a couple planes into their buildings, we would be making statues of that, which probably another group would tip over, you know, in the current climate. But we would revere that person. He would be a war hero. And this is the kind of thing that like if we don't start exercising some intelligence and considering this, we will never grow into a broader perspective. Has anybody noticed that the the our culture is flushing like a toilet right now? <laughs> it's going to be extremely painful for all of us, no matter what the hell you believe. If we don't, it, it might be inevitable anyway. But man, we've got to grow. We've got to see a bigger picture. And it's long overdue to see that bigger picture. That ignorance of other people's point of view is a protective shield. You know, it kind of protects us from things we don't want to consider, things we don't want to see, things that would like threaten that self importance, that ego, but it's also a prison. It keeps us trapped. And this is what we mean, what I meant in the beginning when I said escaping society isn't just about knowing how to live off the land and in the woods. You were in a prison of ourselves. This is what we've been taught. And this is a huge part of the escape, maybe the biggest part. This is why attitude is first in the priority of survival. Um, I think about accidental courtesy. This is a documentary we've talked about. Do you remember the name of that blues musician? I don't. Well, this blues musician who was black, he grew up in uh, Europe where there wasn't as much racism. He came back to America, ran into a lot of racism, and instead of just opposing it, decided to understand it. This was awesome. So, you know, I brought up white supremacists earlier, like as a group that's one of the harder stances to understand. This guy, you know, and I—I I bet most of our listeners are white. I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that. Yeah. And some of you are probably like, oh, that's no, hell with that. I, the, I'm going to turn this thing off. That screw that. I don't need to understand them. They're stupid. <laughs> They're evil. How dare you even say they have a point? This guy was black. He actually was one of the target groups of these white supremacists and he could swallow his freaking pride, his self-importance, go up. He sat down with one of the heads of the Nazi neo-Nazis and asked him, if you feel like I want to hear your point, I want to understand this. So you feel like the whites are being persecuted and the whites need help. How can I help? I can't change my skin color. I'm black. How can I help? That is just I don't even know if I can call it a devil's advocate, but if it's devil's advocacy, it's master level. And that's what I'm talking about. Imagine if all of us had that ability. We could sit down with a fascist, with uh, a Trump supporter, you know, whatever your bad guy, your boogeyman is.
1: And to bring it back more personally, just to interrupt here.
0: Go ahead.
1: Um, what if you just brought it to a person in your life that may be your petty tyrant, that may be someone that really challenges you that just anytime you run into them, whether it's at your job or in your family or in your neighborhood or whatever, you started to think about what is that person like, what is their point of view? How can I better understand it? That doesn't mean you have to change your point of view, but it does mean you have to start opening your ears
0: and listening. Yeah, that's a great segue. That's actually what I wanted to talk about next is I think a lot of us are frightened that if we start to understand a person's point of view, another stance, we actually empower that. We, uh, we lose our ability to oppose that point of view. I would say understanding other points of view doesn't mean we have to promote or defend them. What it means is we care more about truth than being right. And I promise you, if you have a point of view that is contention with any other point of view, you do not have the entire truth. That was something that uh, the Buddha said. I can't remember exactly how he said it, but I believe that fully, you know, a hundred percent, that there is no one in this vast, mysterious universe of infinite, infinite possibilities that somebody's going to have some some religion, some philosophy, some political point of view that encompasses. whole damn thing doesn't mean you don't have a point but it does mean that the other people probably have a point too and it doesn't mean that you have to become one of them if you still feel like you need to oppose this point of view that it's dangerous you can still do that but if you are afraid to if yeah if you're afraid to engage with another point of view you got to ask yourself do you give a shit about the truth anymore because if somebody can argue and punch holes in your argument and you're afraid to engage in that, then aren't you kind of afraid of the truth? Because if your argument is that weak, might you not need to alter it or at least understand it better? So.
1: Yeah. It reminds me of uh, There is No One Right Way to Live.
0: I think that's mm-hmm. what you say. Daniel Quinn There mm-hmm. is No One Right Way to Live. <laughs> That's another thing I posted on Facebook that people uh, liked, but uh, I don't think they really thought of the implications of that. Um, and another thing I'd say about devil's advocacy is it is the opposite of mob mentality. You get a whole mob, and I think this is one of the most dangerous manifestations of humanity is when we get in a mob. I mean, think about lynch mobs. Think about things that have been done in a mob, Um Some of the ugliest things you can find in history are from a freaking mob, whether it's organized or not. You know, the army you could call a mob. Devil's advocate is the person in the mob that says, whoa, wait a minute. Let's consider other things. And I think that's really powerful. I've always hated a mob. If I see the herd going one way... I'm going the other way, and sometimes that leads me off the cliff if the herd's going away from the cliff, but it's just the way I'm wired, you know, that contrary thing again. I cannot stand a freaking mob. If I'm at a table and everybody's saying the same thing, I get turned off. That's when I really start getting triggered and be the devil's advocate, like, whoa, 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 there's just too much, like, an air of opinionatedness here, like, what if you're wrong, you know? And I think that's really valuable. That's something the devil's advocate brings. It diffuses the mob. Can I ask something here? Because No.
1: Okay. Um, we were talking the other day about what it takes to critically think, what it takes to be a devil's advocate, or even to be in the presence of a devil's advocate. Because I can think of um, some examples of people that I know who they just – maybe are done with arguing and they're done with this kind of way of existing where you have to constantly be on your toes and be defending and they're just tired. Is there a a place for devil's advocacy? And like, is there a a time when you can be around people that just kind of agree with you and just are like, it's just easy, I guess, in a way? And easy being a loaded word.
0: Well, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I feel like I'm getting into waters that I'm less confident in. But as you're saying that, my thought is something like, the devil's advocate is aroused when you're being opinionated. If you're not being opinionated, there's really nothing for somebody to be the devil's advocate about. The devil's advocate is the person that says, well, what about this? What about that? They couldn't say that if you didn't say something in the first place. And if you say something that's actually like, well, I'm going to get into Dharma battles in a minute, so I'm going to save some of my answer here, but I kind of feel like if you're tired, maybe that just means that you're tired of losing arguments. Hmm. If you've transcended, I think there is something above all arguments that you don't have to be a devil's advocate or the person being uh, harassed, let us say, <laughs> by the devil's advocate. You can just be above the argument altogether. Um And that person I wouldn't imagine feels tired, they've outgrown it. I think the tired person is more apt to be somebody who is questioned, who doesn't like being questioned, Mm. who can't hold their place in the argument, and who is not willing to look at why they can't hold their place in the argument. Might it be because you don't understand the issue enough? Maybe you should have shut up in the first place. Maybe you need to shut up now and just let the devil's advocate win the argument, and then go back to the books and find out, well, you know, I didn't really like that argument. What about this? And educate yourself. I think the person that's tired is the person that's failing to reflect.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. Because I, I felt like um, in my own life, too, I've sort of shied away from posting things. And it seems stupid to say this, like just posts on Facebook that are inflammatory or even if you didn't mean it to be, but somebody questions you and it's like, oh my God, do I really want to engage in a debate online? Because I really don't I really don't feel like I have the energy for this. So I would like take the post down or at the very least just like all the different opinions that are starting to amass underneath my original post. Mm-hmm. Just like all of them. Like, well, I I, I mean, not just to do, not just to like it, but to actually read them and be like, well, I can see it that way. I can see it that way.
0: I've got one friend in particular on Facebook, and I know her in the real world, unlike a lot of people I know on Facebook. <laughs> uh, we actually grew up together. And uh, she married one of my close friends. Um, And she posts this really opinionated leftist, just unthought through shit. And I often comment on her post and and challenge like, well, what about this? Have you heard about that? And uh, at one point, she, right after I did that, she makes this post that was obviously targeted at me saying like, you know, people always arguing with me. I've had to go see a therapist. Now I'm seeing a therapist because, you know, I... I just and she made this long list of everything she does that she thinks is right in her life. And, you know, I, I contacted her on private messaging and I said, What the hell was that? If you got a problem with me, why don't you bring it to me? What's this open <laughs> letter crap? And we had a pretty nice conversation and she said, Okay, I'll I'll try to do that in the future and uh, you know, whatever and I said, Okay, well I'll I'll you know, I didn't know it bothered you to this extent. I will leave your posts alone. But then she goes right back to making the most opinionated damn post over and over and over. I mean, like, 10 a day, just super, like, confrontational. Um, And you might say, you know, here's where where I could have put on my grown-up pants. I could have just ignored it. But I didn't. Oh so after a little while I was like, you know what? Screw that. You know, I I can't stand these opinions that you're just putting out there like they're facts and they aren't being challenged. If you're going to put it on like out there in the the ether, you know, like I feel like you've stepped into the ring. You should be able to take a challenge. I'm not being rude. I'm not saying you're stupid. I'm just saying what about this? And uh that's kind of where we're at now. She ignores my comments, doesn't erase them or anything. We're still Facebook friends, so I don't know what she does with that stuff, but uh Yeah, I I think of that as kind of a, to my way of thinking, a failure to reflect. And definitely somebody could be my devil's advocate and challenge me on that. Yeah, this is going to be a long episode. Um, Now, to build on what I said about how can we effectively challenge what we haven't even bothered to understand, there's this Facebook meme I've seen going around that this guy's got a Nazi armband and he seems to be in front of a door. This is all the video shows. And he's kind of telling this guy, um, I think he's a white guy, but he's dressed like a black guy. He's a really big guy. And he's sort of like holding his hands up like, whoa, whoa, you can't go in there. That's what the gesture looks like to me. And the guy punches him in the face. And I see, I've seen people share this and inevitably there's a comment over it like, oh, I could watch this all day. Oh, I love this. This fits my mood right now. This drives me nuts. It's that kind of like, I feel like this is exactly what I mean. Like, how can you oppose something you haven't bothered to understand? We don't know what's happening in that video. What I do see is there's one person being violent and one person that doesn't seem to be violent. So that is something like, I I hate that video. Um, To me, that would be something that might be used if you were going to promote actually like the Nazi party you know, and to say that the other side is violent. It's not something you would use to oppose the Nazis because that I would think you'd want to show how violent and irrational the Nazis are, not just some guy walking up to somebody who's not being violent and getting punched in the face. I just think that's ridiculous. It does more for the the side they think they're opposing than it does for them. Um, But it's that narrow thinking. It's a failure to consider a bigger picture and At the very least, it's ineffective. I mean, if I was like a really clever guy in the Nazi party, I would put that video out myself to arouse white people of like, wow, we do need to stick together. Look at this big guy that just showed up and like didn't like what I was thinking and punched me in the face. I never did anything. I've never done a violent act to anybody. I just have my beliefs and I have the freedom of speech to say those beliefs. And this guy thinks he can punch me for having beliefs he doesn't agree with. That's a problem. And I would agree with that person. That is a problem. I disagree with points of view all over the place. You know how many people i punched in the face? None. Maybe, depending on who you are, you say maybe you should punch some people in the face. But the fact is I haven't. I think you should be able to say whatever the hell you want because it helps us grow to think about things, even things that repulse us. Go ahead, Teresa. You look like you had something to say.
1: I'm not 100% sure I can collect my thoughts at the moment, but um, it reminded me of – like the anti-fascists that are going around telling people not to be, um, fascists. And I'm not a hundred percent clear even what fascism completely entails, but if you're telling people not to be something, doesn't that make you, you a fascist? I don't know. It's kind of one of those things. It's like a mirror reflecting into a mirror.
0: Yeah. I've, I've wondered this myself <laughs> and I've looked up the definition of fascism and it looks like, uh, Kind of almost an economic phrase, you know, when you look at the definition. But I agree. Like when I think of fascism, I think of uh, totalitarianism, like somebody saying, you need to think what we tell you to think. You need to say what we tell you to say. And if you step outside of those lines, then uh, there will be consequences. You should be afraid of not agreeing with us. And yeah, I see a lot of the people that think they're opposing fascism acting more like fascists than the people they think they're opposing. And like I said, at the very best, This is just ineffective. Take a look around. How much good is it doing? Um, We, Teresa and I, have been playing a lot of chess lately. And to me, this is sort of like checkers versus chess. We're playing checkers. The the move in checkers is that obvious little like, ooh, I don't like you, so I'm going to move here and attack you. You know, you're not thinking ahead. You don't need to. You're playing checkers. The people that are actually harming us, the people in power, the wealthy, they're playing chess. (laughs) They're thinking many moves ahead Like I said, like somebody playing chess If they were anybody a little bit smarter than the average bear If they were like, let's say, a neo-Nazi They would put out that very damn video themselves I see this all the time, you know, where I'm, I'm like I see the government do something and I'm like Man, they've got think tanks They've got like PR teams They understand the human psyche They make a move. I'm sure they're making a move, understanding what the reaction will be so they can make the next move. That's chess. They are so much smarter than what we're doing. The stupid juvenile crap where we're not even like considering the other point of view. We're playing into their hands over and over and over. You can't beat somebody playing chess when you're playing checkers. It's stupid.
1: It's like allowing us to do something like take a pawn. And then when we're not paying attention... Their bishop, like, takes our queen.
0: Mm-hmm. And allowing the devil's advocate in would allow us to strengthen this, to help us understand our opponent and predict our opponent. Because believe me, they're doing it. And I'm not even talking about conspiracy theory here. I'm talking about, hell, marketing. I mean, just stuff that you can go to college and take a course for. People are studying this crap. This is your knowledge that's being used by all the wrong people. we got to quit being so stupid. Um, I think about Democrats and their sloppy argument for climate change. Teresa and I were talking about this this morning. They keep sounding this alarm, you know, and they, they keep us asking all the wrong questions. They're like, oh, you know, man is affecting the climate. And then the Republicans or the other side will maybe argue that, well, you know, the climate has gone through extreme changes in its whole history. And uh, some of those are very quick, faster than anything we're seeing now as a matter of fact. And actually, we're kind of overdue if you look at the geological record. So they make a pretty good argument. They keep us in this place where there's this argument that goes nowhere. And meanwhile, the leftists, the Democrats, who are supposedly fighting for the environment, keep losing credibility. They keep sounding an alarm. I remember I ran into many years ago that the dogwoods were going extinct, the dogwood trees. There was some disease. Dogwoods are everywhere right now. Every time they say like, oh, in the next 10 years, the next five years, we have two years, you know, like, what is it? There's this new thing that Greta Thunberg's talking about, you know, she's promoting, like, maybe, maybe it's not Greta Thunberg. Sorry if I have misquoted Thunberg there. But like, there's two more years before irreversible climate change. Hmm. They're always giving us this time clock that over and over and over doesn't pan out. Hmm. It doesn't help their argument. They lose credibility. So when I hear somebody say, god you know like they're idiots they who who would believe that crap i understand why they say that that argument keeps us from asking questions like should we be living this way anyway
1: right regardless of climate change or the geological and and atmospheric records of yeah what if antiquity what yeah go ahead
0: what if this culture is sustainable What if climate change never wipes us off the face of the planet? What if this culture just finds a new technology that really is sustainable and keeps us going for the next 10,000 years? What if we're only halfway through this? To me, the real questions we should be asking is, do we want to lead a life where there's class hierarchy, where we feel so estranged from our neighbors, um, that we feel alienated from our planet, that we feel like we don't belong here. Um, I just wanted to get that the rest of that sentence out. Teresa, did you want to?
1: No, that's that's kind of what I was getting at. Was I? We were talking this morning how I said I have never really said that I believe in what the climate change people, scientists, whatever, are saying. However, I don't necessarily believe that there isn't something going on that is caused by man. All I'm saying is, do I want to live a life where I am destroying uh, life? Maybe not the planet, just taking life for granted.
0: Yeah, an objectified universe where we exploit resources, where nothing is sacred. You know, Do I want to live in that world whether it's sustainable or not, whether we're causing climate change or not? And this is what I mean when I say I think they're playing chess while we're playing checkers. I don't think it's accidental that they keep us in this argument, that they swoop up so many people that are trying to care about the earth, that are thinking we need to change, and just put them under an umbrella that keeps us participating. They derail. They're playing chess.
1: They derail us every single time.
0: Yeah. They've already thought five moves ahead. They know, like, when Trump gets up there and says something. Don't think that's accidental. Uh, I believe that they— are totally aware of the effect his words has on people and where that that's going to put people and how to exploit that. We are living in a culture of master exploiters. We've honed the skill to the nth degree, exploitation. And in our culture, we have this desire to silence people. We have all these terms um, like taboo. You know, like, oh, this is something that we don't want to consider. We don't want to see this point of view. That's taboo. Um, Blasphemy. That is blasphemy. To even ask that question, you shouldn't ask that question. It's blasphemy. Shut up. You know, that's the opposite of the devil's advocate. Um, Actually, people are filling in at this park, so I'm going to skip a couple of these (laughs) phrases that I was going to put forward. But there have been some racial ones that are really ugly. Um, Commie. You know, that was something that was getting thrown around, especially in the 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, the Red Scare. You know, if you talk about equality, about like uh, opposing class hierarchy, well, you get dismissed as a commie. And we all know how ugly those commies are. Like, there's people suffering over in Russia and all this stuff. So you're just lumped into that. That's another way that we don't have to listen to you. Mm -hmm. You have a word.
1: It's a ridiculous experiment, communism, just like capitalism isn't.
0: Mm -hmm. Bitch, asshole. Mm -hmm. These are both phrases, you know. Asshole more used for men, bitch more used for women. And I'm not saying there aren't assholes and bitches. That those are just completely wrong phrases. There are definitely people that do not conduct themselves well. Mm -hmm. But it's often used to dismiss people. If a woman is bringing up points, is asserting herself, is asking questions that people don't want asked. She'll often get called a bitch. And same thing with an asshole. If a guy is asking the same thing. So don't be an asshole. I'm not being an asshole. I'm asking some questions. Um, gaslighting. Here's another thing. And again, I'm not saying this doesn't happen, but it's overused. It's overused and it gets abused. Um, you know, as I've told people before, like gaslighting, that movie disturbed me because it was like, whoa. I do see that. I, I've actually done stuff like that without meaning to. But those, some of those things he said and ways he said them, they were a little too familiar. You know, they, they made me uneasy. But that's brilliant. That's what I'm talking about. It's good to feel uneasy because um, then you start asking more further reaching questions. Um, but while we're trying to tell somebody not to gaslight, maybe we should consider, are we in fact crazy? Just because somebody's gaslighting you doesn't mean you're not crazy.
1: We're all crazy.
0: Yeah. It might, in many situations, be more fruitful to turn that lens. I think most situations it's more fruitful to turn the lens on yourself and ask, wow, how can I grow from this? You know, instead of changing your behavior, and this is the whole bullying thing too, you know, we're so against bullying now, but bullies... And again, not clear cut, you know, not across the line, like, Ooh, we need bullies. All bullies are good, (laughs) but it's an opportunity there. There's the petty tyrant, the gaslighter. There's the petty tyrant. Here's an opportunity for you to maybe get saner. And I'm not saying you should stick around with this guy. Like, Oh, he's great. Leave him. You know, if that's his, his game, but we do this to each other, you know, it's, it's bigger than gender. And, uh, I think this is another way we try to silence people, shaming. Oh, I love this one. You know, oh, don't shame me. Don't shame them. Don't fat shame people. You pick a, a group of people that you think are the good guys, and you should not say anything bad about them, but you are entitled to say the most venomous evil, hateful stuff to the group of people you have decided are the bad guys. That's not shaming. That's just the truth. You're just telling it like it is.
1: <laughs> truth to power.
0: Yeah. And that is so ignorant that I can't believe some more people don't don't see the problem with that, but they don't. I see it all the time. Popular words, shaming, white privilege. Here's another one. You know, if a white person speaks up in a group, often they'll get accused of, oh, you 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 have white privilege. You don't know what you're talking about. Now, to some extent, we all need to shut up and listen more. So there's a point there. Like I said, devil's advocate, everybody has a point, but not to shut people up and mansplaining. I hate that. Like men don't have anything to contribute to say, and that like women have it all figured out. Aren't we just getting into the like the same problem, just reversing it instead of growing out of it?
1: Yeah, as long as the person that is mansplaining, <laughs> yeah, is willing to listen to the woman splainer, mm-hmm. then we don't have a, these just these labels. I. I really don't like labels.
0: Yeah. And so many of these ones I'm bringing up are ways to try to silence people. Exactly. And if you need to try to silence the other the other person, the other point of view, maybe you have the problem. A <clears throat> uh, quote by Buddha, I brought up Buddha earlier, is people with opinions just go around bothering each other. <laughs> I love that, you know, like that's kind of the transcendental, you know, neither the devil's advocate or the person with the opinions, like let it all go. I love that little Zen story where two monks are arguing and, you know, the master shows up and one monk says, you know, he pleads his case and and the master says, you're right. And then the other monk pleads his case and the master says, you're right. And then the first monk is like, well, you know, these are two opposing points of view. We can't both be right. You know, what are you talking about? And the master says, you're right. (laughs) You know, that to me is like the true Buddhism. Like, and I love how the Buddha says that as soon as you have a thought, you're, Fearing away from the truth. In this vast, beautiful, mysterious, unfathomable universe, you can't have a thought that encompasses it, much less a word. So anything we say is not the entire truth. So that's another, I think, opportunity that the devil's advocate gets us to question things. Um you know, the Buddha had this noble silence. Like I said, you know, f- to be a devil's advocate, somebody has to be expressing an opinionated point of view. When the Buddha was asked about certain things, it was said he would maintain a noble silence. There was no argument. He didn't argue. There was no room for somebody to be a devil's advocate because he wasn't being opinionated. There was no self-importance there. He would just smile. You could interpret that any way you want. Hmm. Famously, somebody asked him about God. Nobody knows Buddha's views on God. He never said a word. There was nothing there to argue with. He just smiled.
1: And that reminds me, go ahead.
0: Well, I'm just going to finish that thought. Um, I've heard that interpreted and I like this interpretation. That was because the Buddha understood that anything that could be said would be a separation. It would be objectifying God. Now God's over there because we're talking Mm. about him. God is right here. If there is a God, he's everywhere. He can only be experienced and lived. And whether that word makes you uncomfortable or not, the sacred, the mystery, whatever, it doesn't matter what you call it. It's either experienced where you sit down and shut up, a primal core part of Buddhism, or if you talk about it, you're veering away. And in Buddhism, they say, uh, you know, they've got this parable, like, don't mistake the finger for the moon. So all the teachings are a finger pointing to the moon, but the moon is the actual wisdom. It's the knowledge. So carefully constructed, carefully uh, used words, stories, thoughts can guide you towards the truth, but it'll never be given to you in any kind of written or spoken word or a thought. It's got to be experienced in the now, and that's when you drop all that. Go ahead, Teresa.
1: Something else that um, you know, this is an episode about the devil's advocate and and a lot of the things that we're saying are promoting you know devil's advocacy or or just really listening. And another way uh, that I experienced starting to really listen is, in my life, you know, I was in many ways taught to not question. And it isn't necessarily. I don't know. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to explain this really well, but there's no surprise. Um, when something is said, and a thought pops into your head, wait, because it might just be your ego. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if that fits in anywhere, but just wait, and maybe even like ask yourself the question why am I asking this is it to make myself sound smart is it to uh, you know get one up in the conversation or, or steal the the light from the other person like why what is the purpose of my question so I just want to throw that out there because you know you were talking about the Buddha kind of transcending all of that and other people might also. And it's just interesting to um, to think about, like, questioning yourself before you ask that
0: question. Yeah, and it's really important because if you're talking about something you care about, you don't want to lose credibility. You know, it's better to just kind of question it right now um, to be your own devil's advocate. Um, Shut up. But... Let's see. That
1: was for the dog. (laughs) Yeah. I was
0: being Sherlock's devil's advocate. We keep it real simple. (laughs) But yeah, um, you know, I I often like challenge Teresa with that where she'll say something and I'll be like, see, now you got to be careful because if you were like saying that to somebody else, I mean, that's easy to shoot down your argument. Now you're working uphill. Like that's kind of the way debate and argument works. Like if you make a statement that's like, I don't know. I can't think of an example off the top of my head. But yeah, to be careful with that, to be your own devil's advocate first, because then you can craft a good stance, a good opinion, a good argument. Um, I've heard there used to be these Dharma battles between masters, like enlightened masters. And uh, when they would meet, they would get into a debate. They would called it a Dharma battle, and it was considered like a mutually beneficial thing. For instance, if I have this view, I'm an enlightened master, and I meet somebody who has a different interpretation of their enlightenment, we can debate our enlightenment, and if I see something arise in me, if I'm truly mindful, hmm. I'll notice, why am I getting angry? That just made me angry. That is showing me a weakness in my myself. I need to look into that. That is how I can grow. Why did I get, maybe underneath that anger was insecurity. I wasn't too convinced of my own argument. Oh, that is valuable. That's more valuable than anything like a teacher could give me. I just, this opponent brought this out in me he's my petty tyrant. Mm-hmm. He's bringing out my self-importance, you know, and I'm seeing the weaknesses in my enlightenment. And these Dharma battles were considered just a really good beneficial thing where if they were both masters, they would walk away in extreme gratitude to the other person. Think how, think of the contrast to that, how, what the arguments look like in our culture. I mean, <laughs> they're so far from these Dharma battles. Um, Don Miguel Ruiz in The Fifth Agreement, that's another book I talk about a lot, really love it. Um, he talks about these three levels of awareness, and he says the weakest one, the bottom of the three, the first level of awareness, he calls the victim. And the victim is trapped in their own story. They believe their own story is the universe. They can't—they don't know that this vast universe is composed of many, many, many stories. And so I think that's where most of us are trapped, and that's why we have this opposition to the devil's advocate, to anybody who disagrees with us. Um, just this this belief that whatever you think, this story, you've got it all figured out. Anybody that contradicts this story is wrong. And again and again, aren't we baffled, like wondering what's wrong with people? How can they be so crazy? Why don't they see it? Why are they so stupid? What What... What is the matter with these people? We even see it in science. Science is supposed to be empirical, factual. And yet science, there's so many big things that science doesn't agree on or changes from year to year. Something's wrong there. There's no one story. Or if there is, it's not the story most of us are living in. Um, Can you think of any examples, Teresa, where you've benefited from being your own devil's advocate? Wow
1: own devil's advocate um well I mean a lot of times Gumby and I will get into um little tiffs and disagreements and my first reaction is like I can't believe we're fighting about this like what is he even seeing to fight about but then I might like be going for a walk or just like doing my own thing you know just to myself because you know By the way, we live in a van together. Um, Hmm. So as I'm doing my own thing, I start to think about what he has said. Like, did I hear what he said? What was his grievance, so to speak? You know, what was it that I did or said or didn't do that has caused this disruption? And I start to think about, you know, my ego and how... If I put that aside and I really look at it from his point of view, yeah, I can see that there's been some damage done, even though I might not feel in my responses, like in our experiences, that it's worth a, an argument, a fight. But that doesn't mean that he has to feel that way. So in many ways, you're my petty tyrant. Mm-hmm. And to just question my reaction, like, well, did you think about that? Maybe what you did or didn't do or said or didn't say could have, you know, made this into what it is. And, and yeah, I guess that is really my, uh, my best example at this point.
0: Petty Tyron is actually the nicest thing she's called me in days, so I'll take it. (laughs) And yeah, this happens like on both ends. I mean, just this morning, (laughs) I mean, simple, stupid stuff. We're making coffee and, uh, you know, or trying to figure out like what to stir the coffee with a metal butter knife or a wooden spoon that might be imparting kind of a flavor that is not working with the coffee. And we start arguing and I'm like, exasperated. I'm like, I'm agreeing with you. What are we arguing about? So I understand that feeling myself. Um, I can think of some times of being like many times being my own devil's advocate. I mean, just in general in life, but especially like hitchhiking. You're throwing your thumb out. You don't know who's going to pull over and what opinions they're going to have and what they're going to want to talk about. That's when it's really good to be your own devil's advocate to, before you go blowing your mouth off and offending people or getting offended, you know, like start challenging yourself, challenge yourself to be open, challenge yourself to hear something, challenge yourself to maybe consider the point of view that you don't usually hold and might still not hold when you get out of that car, but at least you could find some common ground because we all have common ground. You know, I love this metaphor of saying like, you know, shallow awareness is like the waves on the ocean. Who we really are is the ocean. Beautiful metaphor. We are the ocean. That's the common ground. We're all the exact same ocean from the most distant planets and stars to, you know, your dog to the table you're sitting on. We're all the same ocean. Quit focusing so much on the damn waves. That's where we think we're so different. There's so so much chaos and turmoil and what a hell of a place to live. It's chaos up there. Um... Christian helpers. You know, Christianity is something that I have a lot of beefs with. But, you know, when we're like going to food pantries, when we're getting rides from people hitchhiking, when we run into people who are willing to stop and be helpful, an inordinate amount of these people are Christian, that's not the time for me to be opinionated, to be stuck in my own view. That's a good time to be my devil's advocate. Like, well, what is going on in this religion that's drawing more people to be helpful than other walks of life? You know, even my own beloved Buddhism, I don't see nearly as many Buddhists helping people as I do Christians. So something, you know, I could easily ignore that and just shut that out. But it's the truth. Um, And just having dialogue, just being able to talk to people. I actually put a Facebook challenge on Facebook a while back that was like, I challenge anybody. You know, I made this big plea for the devil's advocate. Some of the things I'm saying now, pick a stance that you don't agree with and make an argument for it. I had like two people take me up on that and they did a pretty good job. I'll give them credit. One guy was actually an Indian and, uh, (laughs) I challenged him to argue for colonialism. And, you know, I was picking something that I thought would be the most opposite of what he thought and goddamn if he didn't take me up on it and did a good job. (laughs) I was impressed. And there was another guy that, uh, Oh, I can't remember what it was. He challenged me to argue for technology. So I gave it my best shot. I think I did a pretty good job. (laughs) But one of the things that impressed me about that is a few people, many people actually liked that. And I said, well, argue for something. They wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And most people just ignored it, which a lot of my Facebook posts get ignored. So, um, but God, what an opportunity. I was asking people to be your own devil's advocate. Can you even understand what you're opposing? Can you even make a case for it? You know, you spend so much energy opposing it, surely you understand it enough to, like, understand what they would say. And shockingly, maybe not that shockingly, people couldn't do it. Or people were unwilling to do it, which is just as bad.
1: Here's something that, um, at least if you live in the United States, you can probably do. I don't know if this is um, exactly what you're getting at, but this seems simple. So one time in my life, I I had always thought, like, Okay, I hate labels, but I was, you know, more leaning towards a democratic uh, perspective as far as voting and, and politics.
0: You poor bastard.
1: So I started listening to uh, talk radio that's labeled like right wing, you know, so whatever Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and all those guys. Um, I just wanted to see what the hell they were talking about because a lot of times. In the media, you will hear about, like, oh, these guys, these men that are just, you know, spouting off their opinions. But there's a lot of people listening to them. I didn't want to change my mind. I just wanted to hear what, like, damn near 50% of the population of my country is listening to. Well, I wouldn't say 50%, but, but a vast majority of Republicans, like, if they're tuning into a show, they may tune into this talk radio.
0: Yeah, and to just dismiss them like they're idiots is so arrogant. I mean, think about what the implication of that. You're so smart. I mean, I think we're all kind of like dependent on a government that's killing us all and our children. Like, how fucking smart is that? All right, Teresa? If it's starting to rain, we need to talk even faster.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's really all I wanted to say is just if, if you're able to um, do a little experiment, listen to something that you know is probably going to have the opposite view and um, and see if maybe you can even research those of what they said.
0: Yeah, so we're coming to the end. We're way over the time that we were shooting for. So just to let you know some of the things I was going to do that we're going to skip over, I was going to challenge Teresa to help me understand, make an argument for either white supremacy— Or being rich. And, Teresa, I can kind of finish this up if you want to go run and, like, uh, roll up the windows of the van, if you don't mind. It might just be a little bit of a... Yeah, it probably is just a passing thing. It looks pretty dark and ominous right now. I was also going to uh, pick one of our podcasts to critique. I was either going to critique Drain on society or uh, U.S. presidents exposed and try to make an argument against it. And myself, for my challenge, I was going to argue for leftist liberals or Democrats. But maybe some other time because this is going on. I do want to end this podcast with... uh, Mentioning Tom L. Pell's book, Roadmap to Reality, there is plenty in there I didn't agree with, which all the better, you know, I, I would thought it was a very provocative um, book. But one of the things I love the most that Tom L. Pell said in that book is to consider what it would mean if you were wrong about everything. So I want to encourage you right now to take a moment and consider what if everything you think is absolutely wrong. I think that's a beautiful practice, especially if you can do it often. What if you're wrong about everything? See what that does, just what it opens you up to. Um, and it's raining on me right now. So let me finish this up. Our writer, our uh, listener write-in is Tommy from Nesodtegun, Akershus, Norway. I'm sorry, I know I really mispronounced that. And he wrote in um, response to Native Literacy Mother, Arne Ness is, was Norwegian. Enjoyed the podcast anyway. Well, thank you for that correction. Um, sorry I got that wrong. I have a lot of respect for that guy, and definitely thank you for uh, correcting that for our listeners. Um, if you have any questions or comments, um, we have a way to contact us through our website www.escapingsociety.weebly. B as in, and this is my Paula Abdul impression. I've been learning uh, straight up on guitar. So, Weebly.com. And we have a Facebook page found at Escaping Society. We have a YouTube channel, um, which we've been trying to add a lot more videos to lately. And we have a donate button. So, if you are able and move to give a financial donation, that's a great way to support us. Another good way to support us is to send us a comment. Just drop us a line. Tell us what you're thinking. Questions or comments. Um And if you know of any gigs, we're always in the market for short-term work. If it's in the summer, it needs to be in a cool place because we've got to sleep in our van, no air conditioning. Um, But, yeah, I know in this time a lot of people are looking for work, and we're one of them. So if you know of anything that we can pick up an extra buck, we're interested. We're going to take a three-week break um, before we start our season six. So um, look for our next episode in about a month. We're going to take three weeks off. Um, and Teresa's back. Thank you for rolling that up. I was just, uh, telling about our three weeks off and everything. Is there anything we're at the very end that you want to say?
1: No, as always, thanks for listening. All
0: right. Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. Thank you for listening to our song it's not very good and it went kind of long don't care if you like it because we'll be gone over that next horizon we ain't got no